This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Navy SEAL and founder of Rare Sense, Chris Irwin. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, his journey into the military, his time in the UK, his own very powerful mental health story, catharsis through music, the concept of mind fitness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of fast-approaching 800 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Irwin. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for your patience. When we originally had scheduled this conversation, it was around a thing that I did called the Human Performance Project 7X. The entire goal of that was to physically and mentally break down a group of, it was SEALs, Delta guys, a um, couple of uh, firefighters, um, and then 
observe the physical mental breakdown that would kind of parallel deployment, uh, you know, a 9-11 incident, something like that. And then how do we put them back together again? Well, when we talked, I was in the middle of that. And this is a perfect testament of how my brain just absolutely took a shit because I had this Zoom <laughs> meeting um, scheduled and no name put to it. And you literally appeared and were kind uh, enough to say, I understand your idiocy, James. Thank you so much. That's funny. So, so firstly, thank you for rescheduling and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, no problem. Great to be here. All right. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? I'm in Northwest Montana. Beautiful. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Wow. Going way back into the archives. Absolutely. I am from Massachusetts. I was born in Massachusetts at uh, Mass General, Cambridge, Mass. Don't remember much about that particular incident, but um, yeah. And grew up primarily in Mass. Uh, I, we traveled a little bit to Europe when I was very young because my dad worked for the State Department. He did Law of the Sea stuff, uh, Law of the Sea Convention type things. He was a, a, an attorney, a lawyer by trade. And so like my very early years, I think we even lived in England for a little bit. And I mean, this is all kind of like I have scant memories of these things. But the joke in my family was always something would come up, some image of the Eiffel Tower or whatever. And my parents would be, you've been there. That was sort of the, the joke, right? Like I had, I think I had my second birthday on the, Q, the, Q, the Queen Elizabeth II going from, like we actually took a boat from, from the East Coast to England or wherever we were going. But like I said, scant memories of that. Most of my childhood was in Massachusetts, growing up in suburban Boston and kind of doing what suburbanites did back in the 80s. And um, so it was, I mean, look, I I had a typical, I guess, if there is such a thing, sort of suburban upbringing, went to public school for the most part until I was in high school and, you know, did the things that we did. We would go around skateboard and ride bikes and come up with games to play and Great stuff before the the invention of the internet. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Curie too. My sister actually and my my uh, brother in law now were both um, servers or whatever the term was then, waiters and waitresses on the uh, I think it was the Queen's Grill, which was the, the mm. nicest of the restaurants on the Curie too. So I know it well. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember anything about that. I think I they told me I had a baked Alaska, which is like this big cake that you set on fire and then blow it out. Right, like for my second birthday, but no recollection <laughs> of it whatsoever. Yeah, I think this ice cream on the inside, if I remember right. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. All right, well, then you mentioned about your dad. Just as a tangent mm. right off the bat, when I first came to the States for the first time, I worked in um, uh, summer camps for years, upstate New York. And I remember in one of the times I was in a hotel, I think I was traveling after the summer camp, and I looked at the yellow pages from the side and there was this one section where the pages were kind of a different color. And I remember thinking, oh, it must be, you know, doctors or something that everyone would use. And when I opened it up, it was lawyers. Mm. And that was my first real exposure to the incredible you know, litigation issue that we have in this country. There are lots of things where law is absolutely imperative and needed, but we found ourselves in this lawsuit happy mentality, which I obviously witnessed years later in uniform and the abuse of that. So did he have any perspective? Did you ever have that conversation of the the kind of frivolous lawsuit issue that we have in the States? 
No, he was, uh, my dad was kind of, he was never like in a law firm that I'm aware of. He wasn't like a big corporation type guy. He was very much a freelance worker. And I honestly never knew what he was doing in terms of making income. It was like he was doing this and doing that. He he like ran a, a, he was a developer, like a real estate developer for a while, ran a company that built condominiums. He was kind of like a freelance architect. He was an exceptionally smart person, like ridiculously smart. To, to this day, I think he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and so he just kind of did his own thing. And, <laughs> and he always said he didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up. So he just kept kind of changing roles. But he was, um, he was, he went to Cornell, which is where he met my mom. I think he was valedictorian at his high school. He did some kind of like genius program at Cornell where he had an extra year there. Then he went to Cambridge, which is where I went as well. Uh, and then he went to Harvard Law School. <clears throat> and um, I think what he, he was very much a, trying to come up with the right term for this. It was like, you can use the law to your advantage. And you don't have to feel like you're a victim of it. You can like, okay, use it, right? Like be smart about it and, and use it. And that's the way I think he looked at it. Um, and I, I get that. Like, I understand that. I never would want to do that, but I understand the sort of, Hey, it's a process. It's a, the law is a fabrication of human beings. It's an imaginary thing. And therefore it's not like written in stone, so to speak. It's not the hierarchy of the universe. It's just something we made up so that we can function in a civilized society. But don't think it's anything more than that. That doesn't mean you should like go break the law, but just realize what it is. Like have an inherent understanding of most of the things we value or take for granted or think of as just the way it is are just made up by other people. Right. <laughs> and then we sort of think that's nature, but it's not like we even apply the term law back to nature as a metaphor. And we talk about the laws of nature, but we fail to realize that that's a metaphor a lot of the times. Right. Like that idea of law is a human construct. And then we, we we're so arrogant. We reapply it back to the way things work in nature as if there are, quote unquote, laws there. And they're not. There are pigeons with the, you know holding legal documents, telling other <laughs> right, pigeons that they right. <laughs> right. We're so used to that saying that we've forgotten it's, it's a metaphor. And I take that from Rupert Sheldrake, who has a really incredible TED talk that was actually it says on the YouTube video that it was banned because it was anti-science. But it's essentially questioning questioning some of the fundamental precepts of science itself. And it's it's a fascinating talk. I watched it a couple times just because I was like, oh. That's some that is interesting. We should think about that. I just had a guest on Emily Kaplan, who's one of Greg Glassman's right hand women now. And they have a thing called the Broken Science Initiative. And mm. what they're doing is questioning some of the so called ironclad laws of science and research. And when you hear them actually kind of unpacking that, it's amazing how actually a lot of these studies firstly of course we're looking at who is funding the study you know one of the sure. things that really kind of shook me is i have multiple certs from the nsca and i learned that they're actually funded by pepsi 
huge conflict of interest in my opinion but yep. so when you look at the uh, these studies it's more probability and then you you see some of the shifting of these so-called study groups to match the outcome that they want you yep. know and there was no better example of how science could be misused in the last couple of years you know i don't think most people woke up wringing their hands wanting to destroy the earth but that blind you know belief in science I think has actually got in the way of common sense. And I see it even in the fire service, our average work week is 56 hours a week. And I will have people literally say that to me, it should be what we call a 2472, which should be a 42 hour work week. And people say, oh, James, would you have studies to show that a 56 hour work week is worse than a 42? And I'm like, are you fucking serious right now? You want me to prove that working firefighters two extra days a week is more detrimental to their sleep, their recovery, et cetera, et cetera. But this is where we're at. I think people are so entrenched in this absolute mindless belief in all science that we forget well, to question some of it. Well, I think it's a difference between, <clears throat> look, science as a method of inquiry is a good thing. I think it'd be hard to argue with that. Like we're, we're going to hypothesize something, scientific method, hypothesize something. We're going to test that. And then we're going to objectively evaluate the results. That's, of course, I think, again, that would be a difficult thing to say. Nah, that, that, that's not a good idea. <clears throat> the di so we shouldn't confuse that with what we're saying sometimes these days about science as an industry, which means it's the people that execute these things, whether it's experiments or whatever it may be, or fund studies, are people, which means they're fallible and they're, you can sway them, you can bribe them, you can, they can fudge the results, they can have their own biases going into them. All of that is true. It's not necessarily the case. I'm sure there are people obviously out there that do their best to objectively do something and hypothesize something and even know that they have a bias, but then if the results are contrary to what their bias was, can say, Okay, look, it, it came out in a way that we didn't want and we didn't think, but here it is. That's what we should be doing. And that's, that's kind of like what science should be and is. But again, it gets mixed in, mixed up with industry and with profit and with bad incentives. And that's the problem, right? We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say science doesn't make sense. Like, of course it does. Like science, science is just what happens, right? <laughs> like, and trying to figure out how stuff happens. Um, but what I will say on like even the, the Rupert Sheldrake stuff, what he was even questioning was, again, wasn't science. It's more in terms of a method of inquiry. It's like the, the fundamentals of it. Some of the things we agreed to as like, that's just the way it is. He was like, well, is it like constants, universal constants saying that, the speed of light is a constant is something that it's like, yeah, that's the way it is. The universe has constants. And his thing was, well, it, it, it does it. Is that, do we know that's a fact? And then he started looking into the speed of light over time and the way it was measured. And it was like a dip during the forties where it was, it was slower than it is now. And he kind of brought this up like, Hey, why was it slower why was ever, everyone measuring it slower? And the kind of the answer that he got was like, well, we, we don't know, but we're pretty sure it's constant kind of thing. And that, that's something I'd never heard before. Like, well, maybe it isn't constant. We've got an, we think, an expanding universe that changes and evolves. So maybe the constants evolve too. I think that's a fascinating idea. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, th I think that kind of thinking is 
is great is just constantly kind of going back to let's not rest on our laurels and assume we know everything. And we're really guilty of that. A lot of the time is like, yeah, we've, we've, we kind of, we know the basic structure. We've just got to fill in the details. And it's like, yeah, I don't know about that guys. Like we're a very, very tiny species on a very, very tiny planet in a gigantic galaxy amongst hundreds of millions of galaxies in a universe that we don't even know the, you know, the George Lucas line of, uh, when it comes to knowledge about the universe, we're at about an eight. The problem is that the scale goes to a million, right? And it's like, that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think that's just it. It's it's just questioning. It's not, you know, disregarding all science because, I mean, most of us, our entire livelihood revolves around science. So I had medicine, I had physics, I had all kinds of stuff in the fire service, but it's questioning. And I think if you look back at, you know, what, People were being told about cigarettes and cocaine by doctors, you know, a few decades ago. You know, if you look about the heresy that was attached to hemp and chiropractic and acupuncture, and now we're having this ancient wisdom reawakening again. So you have to, I think, just question what you've been saying. I would argue even in religious texts, all of a sudden, the human that was born 40 years ago is an expert on what God wants. That's an interpretation. That's not gospel, in my opinion. There are some through yeah, lines totally in all religions, I think, kindness, compassion, service, etc. But when we start yeah, and, deviating, and, then that's when you need to question. Yeah, exactly. And all of that is the result, again, of sort of bad incentives and personal motives and profit and those types of things. And it turns into, it's not science, it's propaganda. It's, it's just a business, right? And that, again, that's the difference. Like, I don't want to... We're going to be in a very dangerous situation if we just disregard the idea of science. <laughs> that's, that's a bad thing for everybody. What we need to figure out, and this is a, I don't know what the answer is to this, but because of the way our entire system is set up, it's everything is profit driven for the most part. And therefore, and you have shareholders that you have to be beholden to, to drive growth every year and make more money. And if that's the case, then that's the incentive. And therefore, you're going to go with whatever is the most, most people are, are the most profitable, not necessarily what's best. And I honestly don't know the way out of that. Other than probably people start, people themselves starting to say, mm, yeah, like kind of what's happening now, right? When it's like, hey, we just, you need to do all this and take all this and da, 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 and it's, it's what's best for you. The second people say, no, we're not going to do that. Okay, well, all the profit goes away too. Like if people are buying your product, your profit goes away. Uh, and that's kind of the only way to change it. The trick there is it's so tough because this whole idea of do your own research. Okay, I, like I understand that, but how do you do that? Like how, do, how does anybody, how do you or I sift through the the information out there the quote-unquote research and figure out what's valid that's really tricky because we are prone to our own biases as well we want to believe certain things um i guess to some extent this is why i'm a believer of you got to sort it out like you have to figure out what works for you without being stupid about it and without being dangerous i mean you can believe some really crazy stuff and get yourself into trouble but like when it comes to your uh, things I talk about, mental health, nutrition, okay, 
you're not, you're, we are different. Everybody's different. Like your nutritional needs and my and mine are are different. We, we have these like fights out there now where it's like we have to. It's like it's got to be my way. My opinion has to be right. And this is the exact diet everybody should eat. It's like no, I don't think that's true at all. I know plenty of people that have really varied diets. I know people that eat like nothing but meat, basically. I know people that are essentially plant based. All who thrive. And, neat, and those things don't have to be mutually mutually exclusive or wrong. It's like, and why do we even care? It's like, you figure out what works best for you. And if that works, great, go do it. It's just, like, <laughs> right? just like religion, same yeah, thing. Yeah, too, true. Like, as long as you're not imposing it upon me, I don't care, do whatever you want. And, and as long as it doesn't become part of public policy either. It's And that, that goes back to like imposing something on me, right? But believe whatever you want to believe, live however you want to live. Just don't make, just don't infringe upon anybody else's rights. I mean, that's the kind of fundamental thing we should all be cognizant of. It's like, you can, you should be able to essentially do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't negatively impact other people. What's interesting. I had, um, uh, James Wilkes who wrote the, or made the game changers movie on the on the uh, podcast. Oh yeah. And I listened to, an episode Joe Rogan does, which I, Joe, I think Joe is, is fantastic, I already do, but this is one of my least favorite episodes I've ever heard because they tore apart the film and then he went on their show, it was him and Chris Kresser, and then they had a debate. And I've never, ever witnessed a debate where someone's gone, oh, you know what, you're right, I've changed the way I think. I think debates are a complete fucking waste of time, personally, that's my opinion. <laughs> because what they did is a total of about six hours of conversation. Not once did they just go, you like eating meat, I like eating vegetables, but you know what we both do? We remove processed food. We eat, we eat vegetables that aren't covered in chemicals. If you do eat meat, I eat meat that's not full of hormones and antibiotics. That is the middle ground where carnivore, you know, all these different ones, they're probably, if you look at people that are thriving on it, they're just taking all the shit out of their diet. So rather yeah. than fighting over right. plants and meat... Let's all talk about the, where the Venn diagram meets, where we're all doing the same, which is probably going back to how we ate like 100 years ago, whether it's meat, whether it's vegetables, the quality of the food and the lack of processing of most of the food yeah. that you eat. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I remember that episode because <laughs> it was the most uncomfortable Rogan episode I've ever listened to, where I was like, it was hard to listen to because of the conversation there. And I mean, I, I guess I would disagree with you a little bit. So that, not to, This is a funny thing to say, right, about arguing. Um, because I think real argument is how we get to solutions. Like what we've, we don't argue anymore. What we do is yell at each other and we're with our own opinions. That's not an argument. An argument is supposed to be, I present my opinion and the information or data may have to back that up. You do the same. And we might, and if we are, um, if we're open-minded, we actually consider what the other person is saying and think, okay, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good point. And maybe they, they can change my mind. The problem is our attitude these days. It's we go into everything with this assumption that we're right about everything, that we've already got it all figured out. And therefore, my only charge in this conversation is to convince you. You're not convincing me, buddy. I'm just going to yell my opinion at you. And uh, and I'm going to and I'm going to do it publicly in a forum like that so that everybody else hears that I'm right too. And that's 
where we're at. And that's the problem. We need to get back to, hey, let's have, yeah, sure, let's have an argument here. And it and not have argument have a negative connotation. It can mean exactly what that what it's supposed to be. You know, like Roman forum type arguments, that kind of idea. Um, and yeah, in a situation like that, look, again, I go back to like, what are the incentives there? If you're, if you make money off of whatever side you're pitching, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're, you know, evil or bad or anything like that. But, but remember that that's, you're, you're trying to make money off of that in, in some way, right? That's a big difference for the, and if you have no monetary interest in kind of what you're putting forth. And by the way, I completely agree with you. I've been... I've traveled all over the world. People have very different diets and are very healthy in places. I mean, like the Maasai in Kenya, I think essentially eat goat meat, blood and milk. Right. And pretty sure I, I don't, I don't have data in front of me to support this, but like just looking at them, they all look really fit to me. They probably don't have much in the way of cancer or heart disease or any of these conditions. Right. And then you go some some other place in the world and they're going to be eating, I don't know, roots and tubers and whatever else. And same thing. So, yeah, it goes back to the the body. My opinion, the human body is extremely adaptable in terms of what it can be fueled by. And we know this in terms of things like ketogenic diet. Right. Like your body can shift and say, hey, you're not giving me this food source anymore. So I'm going to use this food source. In that case, it's going to run off of fat. Uh It just goes back to like, just don't put the crap in there. Don't put all the toxic garbage that's made in a factory. You know, if it's, if it grows out of the ground or if it was walking around or swimming at some point, you can probably eat it. And, and it's, and your body's like, cool, I'll work with that. You know, that's, that's my opinion on it. And that's kind of what I've seen with people and friends and myself too. Yeah. Well, and this is, I think, what I found 750 or 760 interviews now, pretty much. Um, you can have such an amazing conversation where you agree and then just start pushing the walls out a little bit and dipping your toes into, you know, the, the extremes on the left and the right of where you are coming from. And overall, you'll probably come away going, just like you said, huh, I never thought of it that way because you started with commonalities and then you started stretching out. And if you deviate too much, which I've had on the show, I mean, there's lots of people that I don't align 100% with on the show and we have great conversations because I don't care if you think this way about this religion or this way about guns or whatever it is. We're talking about kindness, compassion, human health, you know, trauma, suffering, all these things that are human experiences. So if you start there and then push out, I think you can find yourself in new territories and and you've taken five or 10 degrees outside your own personal circle and you're like, huh, I never looked at it that way. But if you start with what you disagree with, well, I'm black and I'm white and I'm gay and I'm straight and that's what you're screaming from the rooftops, you're missing the 90% where you probably actually align where you'd have an amazing conversation and exchange of ideas. Yeah, yeah. And I think we, we fail to realize how much we are programmed to some extent. And I don't mean that in some, in the way of someone deliberately doing it, but our environment and background, where we were born, all of this sort of innate characteristics that we have, they shape who we are. And we don't appreciate that for the most part. We just sort of feel like, no, I made all my decisions on my own and I'm, I'm very with it. And I objectively look at everything and it's like, yeah, you got to really take a hard look at yourself and realize how much of who you are was basically 
taught to you uh, in either explicitly or implicitly as a as a child, as growing up, like things you were told, like that's the way it is. And you take that on board eventually and you just don't even realize it. Like you don't go back to say, well, if I had grown up in a completely different part of the world and looked completely different, like would I feel this exact same? I mean, that's a really good question to ask yourself. Would you still be you? And I think the answer is probably no. And that's that's a really important insight for us to latch on to. Well, that gives me a great opportunity to segue into something that I ask everyone, especially if they've served in uniform. Mm-hmm. As I progressed through the years with this podcast, a truth that became you know, extremely obvious but was totally unknown to me prior to this was the element of childhood trauma to so many of people who serve. And it makes perfect sense. A lot of us, you know, they want the suffering to end. They want to be the protector. And then you could also argue a dangerous profession also gives you um, – a way to kind of suppress the stuff that's in your head because you're too busy staying alive and protecting other people. You now have this incredible mental health lens in your own personal journey. When you look back to your kind of earlier years, are there any elements of trauma that you now recognize being being older? No. What's interesting with me is it's not. It's um, I think most of my trauma, so to speak, is actually from my time serving. But I agree with you. One of the things I've learned is how many people have childhood trauma of some sort, which I really didn't realize. I mean, obviously, you know that there are people out there that have trauma, but yeah, how big of a component that is for people and how important it is that they reconcile that in some form or fashion, recognize it, figure out what it is. It might not even be on the surface and apparent for them and then go back and deal with it. Um, but like, that's something that I've only learned in the last probably couple of years that there's so many people in the military that especially that had some kind of childhood trauma. And to your point, that probably had something to do with why they went in, in the first place, even if they didn't realize it at the time and that you got to deal with that. I think whenever you are faced with, I don't like saying mental health problems because to me, it it um, reinforces a incorrect paradigm about mental health, which is that it's different from physical health and that it's a yes, no proposition. It's binary. And that it's, it's just that it's like, do you have mental health problems or not? And that's how we view it. And that's not correct. Um, But so much of what we are, what people deal with from a mental health perspective is multifaceted and it isn't as simple as you might Think. A lot of times we sort of dig around for like, what's the one th- we love this in all walks of health and fitness. What's the one thing I hear that all the time when it came to my chronic illness, has anyone ever figured out what it, it is, right? Or like what the cause is, what's the problem. And that's very myopic. And unfortunately it's a result of kind of the allopathic approach that we have in medicine and health that's how we view things. It's like you're sick. So therefore we, it's a pathogen of some sort. And we figure that out. You have a staph infection. Got it. We're going to give you an antibiotic that kills the antibiotic or sorry, that kills the staph infection. You're good to go. But when it comes to chronic conditions, mental health, 
and even our overall physical health too. Like if we're really talking talking about optimizing that, it is a complicated, multifaceted onion of all sorts of things. And there is no one cause. There's no one thing that's doing it all. Um, I mean, I can get into it. I've talked about this on other podcasts, but I have this kind of Jenga puzzle analogy that I uh, liken to a human being, basically, how that works. So I don't, I don't please, know. Do you want me please, to? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. So <clears throat> I, I think of like in my own context, my real chronic illness problem started in August of 2016. And it was like, I went from one day feeling basically fine, right? To the next day, all sorts of problems just felt super weird. And, and just my health went off cliff and I didn't exactly know why at the time. But I had this kind of line in the sand where I had been out, been outside and been in our shed, like pressure washing the entire day before. And as as it became a chronic thing where I felt like this every day, I kind of went back and said, okay, well, what it happened this day? I had a very clear day where things had changed for me. What happened there? What what did I do the day prior? And it was like, well, I, I did this. I was pressure washing all day. I was outside like spraying stuff off our driveway and inside the shed. And I was like, well, maybe it has something to do with that. Well, it turned out it was a lot of it was mold. And I was spraying all this mold off of things and probably inhaled a bunch of it. And I didn't know that there was any even a thing. But then it turns out like, yeah, mold exposure can really screw you up in a big way. So then I went after this mold thing forever, like it's the mold, mold and get the mycotoxins, which are kind of like a output of mold. It's almost like a defense mechanism that they have, which can get in your body. And for some people, we have a genetic predisposition. It's hard to get out, blah, blah, blah. But I had that view of like, it's a single thing. It's this thing. And if if I can just fix that thing, that's, that's what happened to me. Well, I did, I think, and I still wasn't any better or I wasn't that much better. And what I had to figure out was like, no, 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 no. That incident was like, was a trigger. It was not the cause. And so it, and it took me years to figure figure this out. But the analogy that I use is, is a Jenga puzzle. So those towers, that game that people play where it's these wood blocks and they're all stacked up kind of perpendicular to one another into a tower and you pull a block out at a, t- at a time back and forth or with four people or whatever. And you're trying to keep it standing. And then at some point, somebody pulls a block out and the whole thing collapses and they lose the game. Well, your body, you sorry, more than your body, you as a human being are like a Jenga puzzle. And so when you're born, you're like this perfectly constructed Jenga puzzle. But then over time, pieces get pulled out. And that can be trauma as a child. That can be like a serious infection. That can be screwing up your circadian rhythm by operating at night all the time. That can be hypervigilance and anxiety and depression and all of these things, Lyme disease. Uh, And at some point, the last piece gets pulled out that topples the system. And... So what a lot of us do is we go, that's the, I just got to get that piece. And so what you do is you address that and you put it back on the tower. And then you're like, man, I, but I still don't feel good. And it's like, yeah, because all the other pieces are still on the ground. You have to now, this is the real trick. You now have to build, rebuild the whole thing. You have to address all of that. Um, and that's, 
honestly the best analogy I've, I can come up with for kind of how my experience has told me that it basically works. And to sort of, your, you got to go back and you got to address the trauma. You got to address any of the toxins you might have in yourself. You got to change your habits. You got to sort out your diet, all those things. Um, because until you do that, those pieces are still, are just going to be lying on the floor. So it's funny you say Jenga, because I just did a video recently talking about the same kind of thing and in a slightly different context, but it was really trying to illustrate, again, all the different components, but starting with the foundation being your childhood, because I've discussed this a lot as I've become, you know, the, the, I've gained more lessons as a student through all these conversations, but if the foundation you have trauma, but it's addressed, well, that puts that Jenga piece back in. It becomes sturdy again. So you're not, like we talk about, you're not a victim and, oh, I'll try and live with my mental health issues. No, you, you can address them and even, I would argue, even become stronger with the trauma that you've had. For but, sure. You know, so you're putting them back in. And in my profession, you know, organizational stress and sleep deprivation and, you know, obviously um, emotional problems and, I mean, excuse me, uh, relationship problems and financial problems. And then in your profession, especially TBI is another elephant in the room that a lot of people don't think about. So if you're just going, well, you know, it's what you saw at war and that's all you look at and you do EMDR and all these things and it's not working, well, you're missing all these other pieces. And then if you want to take addiction model, now, when you put the piece back, it's not square anymore, it's round because you've used porn, gambling, you know, substances, mm. alcohol. So now you feel like your tower is actually complete, but it's actually even more vulnerable than it was before, more detrimental. So I, I love that analogy because it, it does illustrate that multifaceted approach. And so many times, whether it's a disease or whether it's a, a mental health challenge, we just look at that one thing. Oh, James, you had that kid that was killed in that car crash. That must be why you're depressed. Well, I was also four when I was stuck in a house fire as a child. If we're not talking about that, which I hope I have processed, but say I hadn't, and then I almost got killed by a falling wall when I was about nine that crushed all the cars in the parking lot except the one that we were in driving away, and my parents' divorce, you know, and all these other things that kind of happen. When you're just looking at this one call as a firefighter, we're missing so many other areas that we need to address. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think the the danger there, though, is you sort of said it. We don't want to fall into the victim mentality, right? So the, the, the intent here is to process these things appropriately, not to then stew on them for the rest of our lives. So the, the, <laughs> the problem is we have some kind of trapped energy, some tra pattern of behavior that is way, or is resting kind of on that trauma or whatever it is, right? We, because of that, we've developed a, a pattern or a habit that is not serving us in any way. And so we got to deal with it so that we can change that pattern and not stew on it anymore. And, and like you mentioned EMDR, actually, I found EMDR really effective in that for me and for a traumatic experience where um, it, <clears throat> I went from something that I stewed on and beat myself up over for 12 years to something that I remember, but I don't really care about anymore. <laughs> and that's, that's the difference, right? It's like, you no longer, it doesn't affect you in the same way. It's, I have a different relationship with it now. Well, I want to walk through, you know, your career and out the other end. So before we do that, when we're, when you were still at the school age, were you always dreaming of the military or was there something else in your mind? No, not at all. I mean, um, 
my dreaming of the military, my, uh, the impetus for me was Top Gun. I mean, it's as cheesy as that sounds. That is the truth. It is. I saw Top Gun when I was whatever, 11 years old or something like that. And it was like, that's cool. I mean, before that, I had no idea you could do a job like that, that that was a, a possible job that you actually made money doing and you could support yourself. Seeing that movie was like, that's cool. I want to go do that. And so for the longest time, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, but I, I didn't come from a military family. So I knew very little about the military at all. I didn't have a lot of exposure. My grandfather, my dad's dad was in World War II. Um, but my parents weren't in the military. Like I didn't have this rich tradition or history of the military in my family at all. So walk me through then what took you into the Naval Academy? And then I'd love to hear about your time in England as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, at some point I told my dad, like, hey, I, I think I'd love to be a fighter pilot. That looks cool. And he, <laughs> I think his reaction was, great, if you can get to go to the Naval Academy, I don't have to pay for college. <laughs> so, so he took me down there at some point. We did a little trip down to the Naval Academy. And um, I was like, yeah, this is, I don't know. I was, I think I was enamored by the structure and the order and discipline. For some reason, I really liked that. And I liked pushing myself physically. I really was always somebody who I liked the hardest stuff possible. I was kind of a glutton for punishment. Like I went out and wrestled and I was a soccer player primarily. Um, but I, I started wrestling in high school as something to do in the winter because I wasn't any good at basketball because I'm five foot eight and like, I just, basketball was not in my future. And, um, and I got my ass kicked to start in wrestling. And like, I wasn't even having fun, but it was like, so what? I got to stick with this. I got to like get better at this. And so by, it took me until I was a senior, but by the time I was a senior, I was pretty good at it and like won most of my matches and wrestled up a weight class. And so so that kind of stuff just appealed to me. I was a, I was a strange. I went to a for the uh, the last two years of high school. I went to a private school, and I grew up in Massachusetts, kind of liberal. Like a lot of people walking around wearing socks with Birkenstocks, and you know, listening to the Almond Brothers and Grateful Dead and stuff like that. And um, very few people went to a military academy from my high school, my, my private high school. In fact, to the point where it's like every. 10 years somebody would get in and they usually like quit and didn't, didn't make it through. I think the last person that had made it through was literally like a decade before or something. So, but I, I got it. I applied and, you know, I got the appointment and did all that stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, I went and then the, the seal stuff um, for me was um, just something that came along later. I found out about it. Later again, I didn't, I wasn't really like a military buff or anything like that. But to me, it was, it was like the closest thing you could get to being a superhero. It was like, and you didn't know much about it. it was, this was back when there were some books, there was like some Vietnam books and there was the Charlie Sheen movie and, but it wasn't all over the place and all these stories and there wasn't the internet. And so it was very, very steeped in mystique and mystery and, and like the even the the books would have these grainy black and white photos of the train. Like you just didn't know what the hell was going on. But these guys were like just 
superheroes. It was like the closest thing you could get to being Batman, in my opinion. And I was like, I want to be Batman. That's that's cool. <laughs> Batman is cool. And so, yeah, so that's what I, from that point on, like, it was like, that's what I want to go do. I'm going to go do that. That's even better. That's harder. Now you wrestled and you play football, soccer. Um, yep. I played actually field hockey, which is not as common for men to play in the UK, but I loved it. It was like football, but you had a, we- yeah. a weapon in your hand as well. Um, and then I did martial arts pretty much my whole life. So one was very much a team sport. And then one, even if you're fighting as a team, you're on the mat on your own one-on-one. What did you pull away from those two different dynamics? And did it apply to your career in the military? Uh, well, that's a great question. I don't know if I've ever thought about it in that context. I think for, and by the way, I when I got to the Naval Academy, I actually got cut from the soccer team. I still think I, I part of me thinks I was good enough to play on that team. I was burned out. I've been playing like year round my entire childhood. Like I played every I played winter soccer and indoors. I played in the summer. Um, but who knows? Maybe if I'm objective, uh, maybe I just wasn't good, <laughs> good enough uh, and I wasn't going to wrestle either. So I actually ended up on the crew team uh, at the Naval Academy Lightweight Crew. But, yeah, I think um, first of all, I think a team sport is a great thing for anybody to participate in because it's, it isn't you alone. And I talked to my kids about this where learning to work with a team and everything that goes into that practice and like suffering together and having to, whether you win or lose, it's like the team loses. You can play play great yourself, but it doesn't matter if the team loses. I think all of those lessons are really great lessons. I'm a huge proponent of, playing a team sport. I think it just is a great thing. And then on the flip side, I think doing something as an individual is great as well, because then you're, you're it's just you out there. Like, so my oldest and youngest boys figure skate, and that's something I know nothing about. And I didn't, you know, they, that's how they, where they wanted to go. And that's totally a different thing because like, it is just you out there. Like no one's coming to save you and no one's helping you. There's no, I can't pass the ball back to somebody to, help me out when I get in a jam. It's like, it's all on you. And there's a lot of pressure there. So I think that can be valuable too. Um, and that was, that's kind of like wrestling, right? Like it was, it's just me and I, and I'm and at wrestling is even different because it's not a performance. I'm like, I've got to solve a problem here with somebody else who's trying to do the same thing to me. Um, and then at the same time, it's a wrestling's interesting because you're like, you're with all these guys that are on your team and you're beating each other up which martial arts is I'm assuming kind of the same thing where you're kind of fighting each other every day, but you're on the same side and then you go put those skills to work elsewhere. Wrestling was one of those things where, again, I don't think I liked it at all. Really. I mean, like, I don't think I enjoyed going to practice every day, but it was, it was something I felt like this is good for me. And somehow I think, I think that innately I felt that there were some, good aspects here and it was making me better in some form or fashion and I had a great coach um who was awesome and was just like the nicest guy in the world but the and the but the practices were hard I mean like anyone who's ever wrestled like that is that is hard stuff you know a six minute wrestling match is about as I always laugh because when I'm a crossfitter primarily now from a physical fitness standpoint and like when I learned about CrossFit, when a lot of people learned about it, it's like, well, how do you get a workout in six minutes? And yet 
I had done sports wrestling. The match is six minutes long and you know how much of a workout that is six minutes going as hard as you can wrestling someone. And then crew as well, where you're doing like a 2k erg or a 2k row, 2000 meter row, same thing. It's like with a team, it's, you know, seven minutes or something like that. And it's exhausting. So the fact that I couldn't like put two and two together with those things, it's still funny to me that I couldn't do that. But um, yeah. So yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you look at Fran. I don't do Fran in three minutes. Mine's a lot longer than that. But, you know, you have that. And, and even I did the the Muay Thai. So you kick and punch a bag, full belt for three minutes. You, you will be dead. You'll be you'll be just. Yes. And then you watch these combat athletes and you're like, now I get it. That is an incredible yeah. level of fitness because I can't imagine doing this for, you know, three rounds or five rounds or 12 rounds even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can do something for a minute and be exhausted. Think about Olympic sprinters, like a 400 meter run, right? That's exhausting. And it's not very long, especially if you're good at it. It's less than a minute, certainly. So, yeah. And when you talk about the wrestling as well, it's funny. I just was talking to my friends at Jiu-Jitsu the other day and we were out the back after the class and and I had this, uh, you know, moment earlier in the class where I was trying to finish someone. They were like, literally like, no, 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 you need to squeeze harder here and here. And I was like, you know, this is the only sport, I think, where someone would be like, hey, let me stop you for a second. You're not hurting me enough. Let me show you how to hurt me more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that, and that aspect of any martial art, if done properly, is is great, right? Like, I mean, the, the idea is like making everybody better, more confident, more skilled. And it's not about, it shouldn't be anyway, about really hurting somebody. Um and as long as it's done that well, I think it's fantastic, you know? Absolutely. Well, tell me about your exchange program with the UK. Oh, yeah. Well, it wasn't an exchange program. It was graduate school. So I got, I mean, like there's, uh, when I was at the academy, it was, I think this is right. I think it was the top 25 uh, graduates in terms of order of merit could, if you got into graduate school and you got a scholarship, you could go. You could essentially defer your service assignment, whatever you're going to go do, and you could go to immediate graduate school. So that's what I did. I got into Cambridge. I applied. I got in. And, um, yeah, I went over to England. And and that was, I think that was a little bit of, like, chasing my dad, quite frankly. Like, he had been to Cambridge, and I, I wanted to do that. Um, I think, in fact, it was more about Cambridge than probably graduate school, uh, and I, I don't know if there was any reason other than that. It was like, yeah, he went and I wanted to go too. Um, plus I, I did like Europe. I'd been back to Europe a couple numerous times as a kid and, um, and always just loved it. Just fun. Europe. So fascinating and interesting and cultural. Um, yeah. So I went over there for a year. I studied international relations. I did modern pentathlon, which was a blast. Again, the team that, I was a part of was so fun and um and just enjoyed the hell out of it it was fantastic it was uh it's funny too i didn't even really travel all that much i probably could have i could have traveled on weekends and i was having such a good time with the people there in college and at graduate school that i just i would stay local and just i was also 22 or whatever so i was partying a lot and you know drinking and doing all the things that young single people do <laughs> What were some of the the differences that struck you back then? Obviously, culturally, we're, we have a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences too. Yeah. Um, I had this kind of uh, anthropological 
theory that the worse the weather is, the more interesting the people are. Right. I agree. So hundred percent. <laughs> right. If you go to a place like England, like everyone's really interesting because the weather sucks. And that's because people are less prone to do something outside. What they're going to do is they're going to go to a pub and they're going to have a, you know, a pint and they're going to talk about stuff. Whereas in Hawaii, it's like, Hey, surf's up, man. Like everything's good. Not denigrating anybody that's from Hawaii or anything like that. But like, by and large, I think that's kind of true the way that we've, uh, evolved culturally so um yeah so i think that's it i found the people in england to be very cerebral and uh willing to engage in conversation very articulate too like some of my you know friends that were english were extremely articulate um and um they also, it's interesting, uh, that team, certainly the modern pentathlon team I was on, had a fantastic carefree attitude about things. A very much a work hard, play hard group of people. And that might just have been our age at the time. But they got after it, but they also already got after <laughs> pretty it. Pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, um, I think there was a little bit less. I mean, it's hard because some of this is a it's a result of the time we were in. I don't know if now this would be true because we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet existed, but people weren't like spending all their time on the internet. What we did was we got together with people and we did our practices and then we would go to the pub and we would chat. And, and it was just, I mean, part of me wishes, I wish we could somehow get back to that. Like just get rid of all this crap, all this technology garbage that we have. It's, it's made our lives a lot better, but man, it's made them so much worse in so many ways too. So you said about the weather. I've noticed the opposite with physical fitness, though. I've lived on the West Coast. I've lived on the East Coast. I've, I've you know, traveled to Australia and all kinds of places where there's a tendency to be outdoors. Even Colorado, you could say places like that, too. You tend to get normally just more naturally active people. And I think there's more of a leaning towards, therefore, yeah. better fuel as well. The thing about the UK is because it's so cold and wet and gloomy, there's not, I mean, you're not even in a bikini or board shorts, hardly ever, unless you go, you know, to Spain for a holiday for two weeks and, and then burn yourself to death and come back as a lobster that's peeling. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I've had that observation. Like you said, it's not that we're more interested. I think it's it's more like, like you said, there's, there's, there's an element of resilience and there's an element, I think, the humor as well. So it's a lot more cerebral. Yes. Whereas what I totally. love about Huntington Beach and Colorado and some of these other places is there is that, you know, I don't really need to talk too much because i'm going to be surfing or skating or riding my bike right. and i love that side right. too yeah and i look i think that's inherent in just the way we are as humans to your, to your point you wake up the weather's beautiful it's like let me get outside and be active and do all these things and it's uh you know on the opposite side of that it's the weather sucks i'm gonna sit inside and read a book and drink a cup of coffee or have a beer or whatever and that's just natural like, that makes all the sense in the world I will say I do like the humor too. Like I love, I love British humor. I always have. I loved Monty Python growing up and that type of stuff. I just think it's so so witty and clever and fantastic. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot of whining sometimes, but I think there really is a lot of that kind of glass half full <laughs> mentality too. You know, it's just like yeah. you know the shoulder shrugging. Well, you know, it is what it is. So I, I yeah. like that mentality. Yeah, yeah. Now, were you in the teams pre or post nine eleven? But well, both. So okay. I was in pre. Okay, so yeah. I don't want to you know, drag you through every element, but 
as you progress through, you don't have this military family. Like you said, you've got this kind of Ivy League educational experience. Um, what was it mentally and physically that allowed you to progress through BUDS and get your Trident when so many people rang the bell? Um, well, I mean, that's, that's tough, I think. Um, and like we kind of talked about before, I really try to avoid <clears throat> diving into my military career in any detail. I will say that um, I think that any hard physical training, any crucible, um, is what it's trying to figure out is because people don't look, there's a hiring fallacy, I think, these days where companies look to hire people based on experience. And you hear this a lot like, yeah, we just want someone with more experience. Okay. To me, that's looking for the wrong thing because one, you're going to lean just by default towards older people. If you're older, you're going to have more experience. And that doesn't mean that they're even all that good at something, but it's really missing like what makes someone good at anything. And that is their, in my opinion, is sort of, is their character and their capacity. And so any crucible, whether it's some kind of special operations training or, you know, getting into whatever it may be, is realizes that none of these people have experience. So we can't base the decision on that. What we need to figure out is who they are as people. And so that's what they're trying to figure out is that what is this person's character and what's their capacity? Like, what can they handle? Right. Uh, and a lot of that is mental. A lot of it is mental. Mo I would say, I, let me back up actually, all of it is mental in my opinion, because everything we think of as physical is really mental. It's just a mental construct. You can't do anything physically without experience. The only way you experience it is mental, right? Is mentally. So what gets you to the gym in the morning is because you make a choice to do that. That's a mental, that's a measure of mental health. And then the way you experience the workout is mental. It's like, you, you know, you know, you, without the experience of consciousness, you wouldn't have the workout. You wouldn't know what was going on. So it's really all a, a mental thing. And so, look, for me, I just, I think in your bones, you need to know that you're capable of something. And if you believe that, if you believe anything about yourself, you can go do it. And it's a huge component of mental health in general. It's just, I was like, I, the, the few people can do this, but I'm one of them. Like, I know I can do this. And that's an important thing. I, I, you know, let me just dovetail on that a little bit. Sadly, I think when we, if we were in a profession like that, we get out of it and we sort of lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that like we can believe things about ourselves that and make them true. So we, we get wrapped up into these, I'm broken, I'm screwed up, I'm, I have TBI, and then we believe we're going to be sick the rest of our lives or we believe we're going to be incapacitated the rest of our lives. And all we're doing is reinforcing a negative thought pattern that's just going to make ourselves worse. And we we need to step back and really ch and change that. Be like, OK, fine, whatever's going on with you. Do you believe that it's going to ruin you for the rest of your life? Do you believe that you're locked into these patterns and these thoughts because if you do, you're never going to get out of them. But you got to get back to like believing in your in yourself. I think for some reason, 
Like that certainly happened to me. I lost the ability to believe. And I know I'm going off now into the sort of like, this is, this is the stuff I like talking about. You know, I, I realized, man, it's like, and I didn't even realize it was happening at the time, but I, I, I lost belief in myself at some point. Like I started to believe I was a failure that I was, you know, I felt guilty about things. I felt ashamed about things. I felt, and, and because of that, the story I spun in my head was that it was a belief that I was unworthy, that I shouldn't be here, that, and that's all just, those are all just beliefs. And it's, it's amazing how I think if my younger self had looked at that, be like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like what, what happened to you? Um, and that's not to make myself feel even worse. It's more to like snap myself out of it to be like, dude, get back to believing that you are valuable and that you can work through things and that you have inherent power in yourself to improve and overcome. You know, we, we view um, if you're one of these people that's in a, you know, a hardline profession like this or really anybody, we're pretty good at like ex believing we can overcome external problems. It's like, okay, this is an obstacle course, or this is a long swim or whatever the, whatever the hell it is. That's an external problem. And I'm good at external problem solving. I can overcome that. It's going to be uncomfortable, but got it. No problem. When it comes to internal problems though, when you're stewing on regrets or uh, survivor's guilt or whatever it may be, we we view it differently. It's like, no, 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 I'm screwed up, right? The problem is me. It's not external to me. Therefore, I'm the problem. And that's different. Um, and we need to change that mindset to one of, no, it's just, it's just a problem like any other problem. And it's, and honestly, if it's just a thought or a pattern of thoughts, stream of thoughts that you're having, that's just a stream of information. It's not, you don't have to identify with it. You don't have to latch onto it. It's just a stream of information. It's just like somebody else yelling at you that you're a piece of shit, you know, except you're doing it to yourself, but you don't have to treat it any differently. You can gaff it off in the exact same way if you train yourself to do that. So Anyway, that, that was a big tangent. I get it, but no. But that's why I asked the question. It didn't have to go anything military specifically. Um, two things out of that. Firstly, your on ramp in you know buds and your selection. The fire service is the same. We have that element of shared suffering, and we have that attrition rate, and we have that self belief. And in Florida, the irony is our fire academy. It's called minimum standards, so it's even labeled for us. This is the most shit you should ever be in your entire career. <laughs> But what happens is That's that great. it's kind of like, you know, the Uncle Rico thing where you get a lot of guys that look back, oh, I was my fittest ever beam was in the academy. Well, shame on you. But the problem is, I mean, to be fair, firstly, a lot of these departments, these guys get, men and women get worked into the ground with the, the core load and the way that we work them and the sleep deprivation. But I think that whether you look at a fire department or whether you look at the country, as things become more and more comfortable and there's less crucibles and less suffering and less shared suffering, you lose that tribalism and and the the person that you remember as being really tough gets further and further away chronologically which is why i think you know when i see in police and fire now the, the selection bar is getting lower and lower and lower we're only setting up people for you know a greater fall when they get to that point the, yeah. the second thing is what you talked about <clears throat> is something that i've seen that you don't see on any of the the mental health discussions posters messaging whatever is 
again, through this process, one of the reoccurring common denominators that people say, and after a while I picked up on it and went, wait a second, this is something we never hear. I felt like I was a burden to the world. So you think mm-hmm. about all this, this conversations that myself and pretty much all of us had when we were younger. Oh, how could you do that? That's so selfish. It's so cowardly. Why'd they take their own life? And now, as you touched on, I'm realizing that the brain slowly, if unaddressed, starts miswiring itself to the point where this absolute belief that the world would be better off without them. And you add, again, you know, trauma and TBI and sleep deprivation and organizational betrayal and all these other things that compound. Some of our men and women find themselves in that perfect storm where they truly believe that they are a burden. And that is an extremely hard thing when they get to the crisis point for them to unlearn. But then you take someone that believes they're a burden and then someone says, oh, just think of your wife, think of your kids. I am, you know, and that's what finishes it. So I think that should be one of the big red flags in the mental health conversations is when you start believing you're a burden, that is when you need to really dig down, find whoever it is that you feel comfortable talking to, and then going down the path, if not before, of course. But that's the giant, hey, we're getting towards the end red flag, but you never see that really discussed in any of the the kind of mainstream messaging when it comes to mental health and our men and women in crisis. Yeah, and it stems from, I mean, it makes sense because like, let's talk about the, that kind of whole rough idea of a pipeline. Okay, so it's this crucible you go through. First of all, on the standards thing, like I'm a big believer of like, we shouldn't be lowering standards for anything. Like a, st- a standard is so someone can do a job, physical standard, mental standard, whatever it may be, right? Here's the job. Here's the standards we set. Done deal. Like meet the standards you can do that you're, you know, we'll accept you into the job and then we'll evaluate you in other ways, right? But that should be like a cut and, a very cut and dry thing. I've never understood why the standards are about the ability to perform the job, period. So whoever... If you can pass the standards, you can perform the job, great, and then we'll evaluate you for all these other things, whatever it may be. So that's kind of one thing. But the the people that go into those types of professions, we're very proud people, and we take ownership of ourselves in a big way, right? So it's very much about, like, what can I do? Uh, Me, me, me. And I don't mean that in a selfish way or anything like that, but it's like you're very confident and, like, the things you think and the things you do, you you very much are latched onto those things. And so, and then the, the only tool we're really taught from a mental health perspective is suck it up. It's suck it up and suffer in silence. Go harder, wake up earlier. And you see this a lot out there, right? This, this kind of like that mantra don't, I mean, how many times have we heard, don't quit? Oh, got it. Don't quit. Thanks. Like, <laughs> haven't, heard that a gazillion, <laughs> haven't heard that a billion times, right? That's not that it's a bad message. Like, that is important. And obviously, to be able to do these things, you have to have that mentality of don't quit. And it makes sense in terms of job performance. Like, you can't, it doesn't matter how physically uncomfortable you are in the moment. Like, if, if lives are on the line, like, you have to keep going, right? That's a really important thing. The problem is all of that, like you take everything, all of those pieces, and then you go into the sort of post-job, veteran space, whatever it is. And now it's like you got these other things you're dealing with, like you're talking about your regret, your guilt, your you get these kind of like notions of being a burden. And like these are the only tools you have. One, <clears throat> it's saying something like you're weak 
at in that moment, right? And the only thing you know how to do is suck it up. So what do you do? You like you suck it up. You just like keep it to yourself. You isolate, suffer in silence. Terrible idea. And the problem is, is we don't from the get go like when people are like young in these things, we need to start teaching people about sort of mindfulness and this idea of being aware of your own thoughts and not identifying with them. And, and so when it comes to the point where you're thinking that thought crosses your mind, like I'm a burden, you're not saying that's me and that's true. You're just going, that's a thought. I can, I can objectively observe that thought of I'm a burden and I go, yeah, that's just a thought. I don't have to pay attention to that. And by the way, nobody else is saying that. Like you might think other, you're, you're spending a lot of time thinking other people are thinking that, then they're not. They're just not. They're thinking about themselves. They're doing the exact same thing you're doing. Right? Like, I think that's one of the, the biggest lessons I had to learn was, and, and here's another tough piece about like groups that are built on, whether it's a soccer team or a wrestling team or a special operations team or a you know, a group of firefighters, firehouse, ops. We're very reputation-based, right? Like that's a big deal. Like your reputation matters. Well, what's your reputation? It is by definition how other people think about you or what how other people feel about you. So because of that, we spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are thinking about us. The problem is that people actually don't think a lot about us. We think about ourselves, right? So if you if you sort of extrapolate that out to humanity, what everyone's actually doing, what that actually sets up is a situation where everyone spends their time thinking about what other people are thinking about. And since everyone's doing that, no one's actually thinking about anybody else. Right? Uh, and that's a hard thing to kind of get your mind around. But once you realize that, it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm not thinking about a whole bunch of other people. I'm thinking about myself, which means they're thinking about themselves too, right? Um, and that I think that thought can be very freeing and that understanding that reality of like, you know what, people aren't really judging me for stuff. I'm the one judging myself and all of this is, is internal right now. It's just in here. And if I can start to objectively look at that, I can actually change that talk track. Um, and that's hard. None of that is easy, but it's definitely doable. And I guess my point is that we need to start doing these things way earlier in life with people, even as kids, I think, um, because we're seeing, we're seeing the downstream effects of not doing it. I mean, like, this is why all of our trends are terrible when it comes to anxiety and depression and suicide. Yeah. We don't teach anybody. I didn't learn any of this shit till I was like 45. Join the club. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's true with most of us. Like, if I ask any of my buddies, like, how many of you guys meditated when you were 16? Nobody would raise their hand. Nobody. They wouldn't even know what it, what it was, but we didn't know what that was, you know? And I, probably the same thing in my 20s and 30s, I would say is true, you know? Now, luckily, I think this is becoming more in the public sphere in terms of information and out there. And I'm hoping we're sort of heading finally for a, you know, mindfulness revolution of some sort, the way we've had sort of industrial revolution and technological revolution i think we're due for it for sure yeah i think there's a holistic revolution i really do the kind of ancient yeah. ancient wisdom that we've you know arrogantly disregarded for the last couple of right, generations 
because there's no evidence for it. Yeah, and there's right? no profit to be made from mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's no evidence. Sorry, guys, no evidence. Uh, the thousands of years that you've practiced this, there's no evidence that that doesn't. That's what gets me is like, oh, finally, you know, science is able to prove that meditation is good for you. Like, oh, really? So, like you said, fast. thousands of years of people doing right. it wasn't right. kind of like a yeah. heads up because you seem to be exactly. aligned to books that were a couple of thousand years old with no problem whatsoever, but you're questioning right. mindfulness. So. Um, yeah, with the with the what people were thinking, I absolutely adored um, Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you ever came across him. He's kind of I always describe no. him almost like a white Deepak Chopra. He he took all the wisdom. It could be ancient, you know, Greek and Roman, you know, mythology or you know, holy scripture or whatever it is, and he just extrapolated the actual takeaways that were common denominators from so many. But one of the things yeah. I remember him saying, and I love this quote. What other people think of me is none of my business. When you put it mm. that way and realize that you're the only person that can control your trajectory, you know more than anyone if you're doing things that are right or doing things that are wrong. So worrying about, you know, for example, my last fire department, I know, you know, I ruffled a lot of feathers because I was trying to improve areas that absolutely needed improving. And some people didn't want that done. They didn't want the, the boat rocked at all. But it's irrelevant because I knew at that point, I'm not saying I was a you know, great person, but the mission was I don't want people to die in the area that I protected at the time. I don't want my firefighters to die from obesity or take their own lives. So these were some of the things I was forging. But I know I didn't make a lot of friends back then either, but it doesn't matter because if you are on your own path and like you said, you're worrying about, oh God, what will so-and-so think? Ultimately, you have to look within, which I think is where meditation is great and be like, am I doing things for the right reason or doing things for the wrong reason because you're yep. your harshest critic at the end of the day. Yep. And I would say, I would go even one further, which is they're not thinking about you. There's a quote from Winston Churchill, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something like, <clears throat> you know, in my 20s, I worried what other people thought about me. In my 40s, I stopped caring what they thought about me. In my 60s, I realized they weren't even thinking about me. And that's that's where you ultimately got to get to. I mean, like, of course, like we get an argument with somebody or someone rubs us the wrong way. We'll think about it for a little bit, but it goes away pretty quickly. Right? We don't stew on that. You're not five days later thinking about the argument you had with somebody or judging them or the person who cut you off in traffic or the coworker you had an argument with. That just You just don't do that. You move on. We're the, Internally, we're the ones who don't move on. We're the ones who then a month later are still stewing on whatever the hell it is. And that circumstance is gone. It doesn't exist anywhere, but in your own head at that point. And the only reason it exists there is because you're perpetuating it. Like you're deliberately making a choice to keep it there. And that's such a waste of everything, a waste of energy. It's detrimental. It's, you know, and, and so it's getting out of that, that habit, that pattern, you, you know, to, the quicker you can just sort of let things go about anything, man, like that's such a skill to develop. All right. Well, then I want to hit CrossFit quickly and then go to your kind of journey as yeah, far yeah. as your own yeah. holistic health. Ben Bergeron was the gentleman that connected us. So I want to say thank you to Ben. Um, talk to me about how you first found CrossFit and how you ultimately ended up having a gym on, in the Caribbean. I found CrossFit because we were, I was, my last tour was overseas and um, the wife of one of the guys that was stationed there with me was is kind of like OG CrossFitter type person. And she was like coaching people and working out with a lot of the spouses. And my wife had just 
had our second baby and like we had kind of two, our first two kids were almost like back, back to back within 17 months of one another. So she was trying to get back in shape. And so she started doing this and she loved it and just thought it was really effective and really cool. And like we were sort of doing stuff that was, or I was doing stuff that was kind of similar, but it wasn't strictly CrossFit. It was kind of getting more into functional, functional fitness. Right. But um, yeah, so she went and did a, a level one in Holland while we were there and um, and came for a weekend and came back was just like, oh my God, it was so great. And like, blah, 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 you got to look at all this stuff and read this. And at the time I was very resistant to it. I was very much like a, like I said before, a, how do you get a workout in six minutes? Like that's, you know, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. So anyway, so I got out of the military. She signed me up like the, when I was processing out, she signed me up for a level one. And um, she's like, you're going to go. To this. So I did. And I went to this level one and it was like, okay. I mean, there was, it was clearly evidence-based, right? Like there was science behind it. It made sense. Like everything they were saying was like, okay, um, I understand how this works. And then we did like workouts on the weekend. And I was like, I mean, I, mean, I, I think I actually really liked the competitive aspect of it. That was kind of part of what I always liked competing. Like, like anytime we went for a group run or anything, like I always wanted to win, like just really liked competing. And it has a competitive aspect to it. It's there's a leaderboard. It's like you're, you're racing everybody. And I've really dug that. Um, so from that point on, I was kind of hooked. I was like, okay, we're this. Yeah, this is great. And then you look, you see the effects of it too. It's like totally works. Right. Like, I mean, I've seen that with numerous people over and over and over again. Um, yeah. So I just got completely hooked on it. And then we moved to St. Thomas uh, quickly thereafter, I was had a job down there for a bit, and um, we started the CrossFit St. Thomas. We started Reebok CrossFit St. Thomas uh, down there in the in the Virgin Islands. We were the first CrossFit gym in the Virgin Islands, and it was because my wife was kind of training people on the like training. It was like kind of working with people on the side, and then some people were kind of working out with me. And eventually, we had all these people that were working out with us, and it was like we should just affiliate and just have a gym. So we did, and it was literally in our house down there. And, and it, what was cool about it was that nobody down there had done, they didn't even know what CrossFit was when we came down. This was a brand new thing down there. And then we found a space and we, you know, built it out. It was a maintenance bay that we, you know, painted everything and rolled out the golly equipment. And, and it was, we did that for three years, kind of as a little side project. And it was amazing. Like it was such a, that community down there was like the tightest community I've had outside of the military anywhere by far, like just super close, changed the culture down there from a fitness standpoint. I mean, now there's cross, there's at least one down there. Um, and those people there are still great friends of ours. We actually just went back there last summer for the first time in like eight years. And it was like, you know, it was, just, they're just great people. It was such an amazing experience. And I think that for me, that's, what CrossFit does or has done for me is it's a combination of super effective fitness regimen. Um, again, I love the, I love the competitive aspect of it. It like makes me better. And the community aspect of it, I think is such a huge piece to it. It is, it's not people lifting weights, walking around with their headphones in, not talking to one another. It's, you like working out together and you encourage each other, just like BJJ, right? Like you're, it's like, trying to make each other better. 
And so it's a, there's a social aspect to it that I think is, is enormous and is a huge benefit, especially now. The wife of the, uh, the, one of your teammates, that wasn't Sarah Wilkinson, was it? Uh, no, it's not. However, Sarah was my, one of my level one, um, coaches, trainers. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that, again, that seems to be a reoccurring truth is a lot of us that wear uniform have, if we're not careful, you know, we have that tribe, we have that purpose, you know, we have that kind of um, almost the ego side of it. And I don't mean that in a negative way attached to our profession. And then when we transition out, some of us is very, very jarring. And it takes, you know, some of us, it takes some time to to adapt. Some people, it, it crushes them. You transitioned out and you found this community in this tribe. How was your transition specifically from, you know, full-time active duty SEALs to, to the next phase? Well, it, it was tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean, so my thing was when I, when I got out, this is when I developed this anxiety problem um, right around the time I was kind of getting off active duty. And for me, it was a situation where I had a lot of, I guess it was survivor's guilt. Like I just felt like, well, I, a couple things. So one was, like I said, I had this kind of, I call it like a Bill Buckner moment and people don't know Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner was the first baseman for the Red Sox in the eighties. And in the game six of the world series against the Mets, they were about to win, win the world series for the first time in whatever, whatever it was like, wasn't a hundred years, but this is the curse of the Bambino, right? They hadn't won the world series since they traded away Babe Ruth. And there's a infield hit down the first baseline. All he has to do is pick it up and, scoop it up and step on first base game over world series over and it went through his legs and they lost the game and then they lost game seven and the Mets won and it was like and man and everyone obviously in Boston came out hard I'm sure Bill Buckner had a terrible time after that right but it was just one of these things where it was it could have been the best moment of his life and it was the worst right and I had something kind of similar like it wasn't a world series but like the idea of just sort of tactically not performing the way I should have. And I won't get into any details beyond that. It doesn't really matter. But but that weighed on me in a huge way. And it just I just kept thinking, like, you're a failure. You're an embarrassment. Guys don't like you. Um, you know, you let everybody down. Um, and, and then it turned into you, um, you shouldn't be – like these other guys died too. Like some guys, you know, didn't make it and you did. And like, you don't deserve that. And so you should die. Like, I mean, this is where my head went. And so then it turned into like finding things that trying to find something that was killing me and like thinking little sensations in my body were the start of some terminal condition or something. And, and then it, and I didn't realize it at the time, but if you do that, like you will start to feel worse physically because you just what you're doing is you're ramping up your limbic system you're big you're basically telling your body you're in danger all the time and like therefore it makes these sort of sensations worse and then you think that you're actually dying and then that makes the way you, so it just snowballs on itself and it, i mean it can really screw you up in a big way uh so that's where i was at that was like my exit from the military was like right in the middle of that and i didn't have anything anywhere to go i like didn't there uh, 
nowadays there are more, there's better support structure. There's a lot more programs and stuff like that. At the time it was just kind of like, well, see you later. And that's okay. That's the way it was for everybody. I didn't think I deserved anything better than that. But so, yeah, that's, that's where I, that was the sort of transition. That was my transition basically. Right. And so like going down the same time, like that group, that definitely like helped in some ways, certainly have a community and everything, but it still didn't really help me deal with what I was dealing with, you know? Um, because I, I didn't even realize it was fully, basically psychosomatic at the time either. I thought that there was stuff physically wrong with me. Um, and it turns out that there probably were some things that didn't get really highlighted until I kind of had this chronic illness crash later. But uh, but so much of it, so much of it was instigated by basically me being mentally unfit, you know, doing it to myself. Did you ever get to the point of actual suicide ideation? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was um, the, I mean, plenty of ideation, certainly. Like, and I'm not afraid to say that. Like, you know, I think we, we feel like we can't talk about these things or like it's embarrassing or something. And it's like, look, I think there's a way more suicidal ideation out there than people let on. Like, it's a perfectly normal thing to think. Like, you, that's, like, you can think that. You know, and you don't have to be ashamed or think you're weird or unusual because you think that. I think that thought probably crosses everybody's mind at some point in their life, even if it's just a fleeting thought because of whatever, right, that they don't take seriously. The problem is when you latch on to that thought, right? Like when that becomes something where you you start to think, hmm, maybe that is actually a really good course of action. That's when it becomes an issue. But yeah, I mean, plenty of times that crossed my mind, but like the, for me, the the real sort of nadir of everything was I had, I had got about three years into my chronic illness. Like it was just so bad, like just feeling horrific every day. And I just had this point where I was like, I don't know what to do. Like I can't figure out the solution. And, um, and I, I posted this, this is what started everything that I have done now with, with rare sense and with kind of mind fitness was I posted this picture of myself. I took a selfie. So I was, I was on the floor of my kitchen, like on our hardwood floor, just curled in a ball, like with my wife holding me, just crying my eyes out. I'm just like, I got to kill myself. Like, this is just, I can't go on. And I didn't, um, but I took this picture of myself on my phone, just a selfie, like a, not a flattering selfie, like of what I looked like in that moment. And the thought was like, kind of, there was a couple of things that, occurred to me that day one was like the actual like I, I really was emotional and like doing that made me feel a little bit better and it was like hmm there's something there where like I need to be I need to tap into my emotions more like I think I've suppressed way too much of the shit for way too long and then the other was I wasn't even when I was at my worst I wasn't like that all the time I just wasn't it was like there were brief moments where I was fine so I kind of had this epiphany, like, okay, whatever's going on with you isn't a, isn't permanent. It's not a, you're not broken. It's not like a broken limb where you're, if you break your arm, it's broken until it heals. You can't, you know, you don't have a day where you're like, oh no, it's fine. It feels good today. It feels fine today. I'll just go lift weights with it. It's like, no, 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 it's in a cast and it's broken until it heals. That wasn't what was going on with me. It was like, 
even at my worst, it would be like, oh yeah, I've got, I've got some moments where I'm fine or, or a couple hours where I'm actually like in a good mood. So it's like, okay, well, this is a software problem here. Right. So that's, I, I, anyway, I posted that picture on Instagram finally, because I thought, um, because I'd, I'd made some improvements. It was about a year later and I'd made some improvements and I thought, all right, there's a, I think there's a lot of people that feel this way. And, and I don't like to talk about my kind of military stuff, but like this needs to be talked about. And if I start doing it, maybe somebody, maybe somebody who is on the verge of suicide won't do it, right? Because they'll realize, hey, this guy's a lot like me and I'm not alone in my struggles. And like, maybe we can figure this stuff out together. So that's what I did. And like that kind of launched this project that I've been doing now for the past, I don't know, year and a half, two years at this point. So walk me through that journey, though. You're lying on the kitchen floor. You've got this, you know, the, all these kind of emotions and this this uh, shame and guilt attached to the incident, specifically when you were serving. You've got this physiological breakdown post, you know, pressure cleaning. What was your personal journey? What were the tools that you started collecting that made you realize that you're not, you know, irreversibly broken, but that you are actually start able to put those pieces of the Jenga tower back together again. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. And this is part of the thing is that each, I think we look for solutions that are, someone can say, here's the solution. Here it is. Here's step A, step B, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, just do these, do my 12 step process and you'll be fine. Or you'll achieve whatever result you're looking for. And one of the things I talk about is that it, it is not that way for anybody in terms of their mental and physical health. It is bespoke to you. You have to, there's sort of generalities, but like you got to figure out exactly what you need. And that's part of the, the journey. So look, for me, it was one, I had, I had a lot of emotional repression that I had to sort through. And I did that a myriad of ways. I did it through, um, well, okay, so like the EMDR, right? So I had a lot of storytelling of just like thought patterns that were unhelpful and that were not serving me. And so EMDR was really helpful for me in, in making me realize I didn't have to tell the same story about these memories. I could change the, the memory is not going to change, but I could change the story. And you can do that. And you don't have to be locked into just telling yourself the same damn thing over and over again. So that was like one piece of it. The emotional thing was a huge piece of it. Like we, I think I had spent 20 years just like stuffing every, like, I'm just going to stuff this emotion down, right? Somebody died. Nope. Not crying about that. Not dealing with that. Not <laughs> processing any of that grief. I'm just going to tamp it down. And so I had to go through various therapy to do that. Um, I mean, I did, I did psychedelics, which really helped there. I did psilocybin, which was extremely helpful from an emotional st processing standpoint, and then made me realize how much I need to lean into emotions. So it like sort of opened the door, I think a little bit for me to be comfortable crying. And to the point now where I'll, if I start crying one day, I'll video it and I'll put it on Instagram <laughs> just to be like, this is okay. Like you can do this. And it might come at a random time. And what you need to realize, because what I would notice is I'd watch some like kids movie with my, you know, cartoon with my kids and I'd start getting all choked up and I'd be like, what the hell is, why is this, you know, I shouldn't be. So I would do what I always did. Like, don't. And, and what my body was telling me was like, dude, we are looking for a window to get this shit out of you. 
and you keep resisting it. Um, and so it wasn't until I did the, the psilocybin that that opened my eyes to, uh, you know, and I did it legally. This was like out of the country and everything. It was actually a very organized thing. And I wouldn't, by the way, I wouldn't recommend anybody. I'm not recommending anybody do that. And I would also say like, there's a lot of bad ways to go about that. Like I have a whole podcast episode where I talk about that experience that people can listen to about like, you know, just being in the right setting and like doing it with the right people and all of that kind of stuff, like very safely. But, um, but what it taught me was there was so much of that that I needed to get through and that you, this might come up and you're not going to exactly know why, but you got to lean into it. So like one day I was sitting here, this was after the fact, this was probably a couple months ago, sitting here and like there was this, this song came on by, you know, I'm, I'm listening to music while I'm working and this song comes on. And for some reason it was like, like the emotional trigger was there. It was like, I could feel myself and it was like, fine, I'm just going to like let myself cry right now. And I videoed that and put it on Instagram. It's just like, you know, and explaining that to people, like that's your body trying to tell you something like, and like, you shouldn't resist that. You know, it's like being hungry. You, when you're hungry, your body's telling you, we need some food, <laughs> right? This is like, you need this energy release. So it was that, it was a lot of diagnostics on toxicity as well. Like, you know, I do, I did have a lot of, and still, I still work through this as well. Like I had Lyme disease and parasites and heavy metal toxicity. And like, that's a component as well. And I won't deny that that's, that's a piece of it. So I've done a lot of alternative treatments, stuff that people would be like, you did what? Like you injected what into yourself, you know? Um, so I've gone deep down the rabbit hole of that type of thing. Certainly got into mindfulness and meditation, being able to separate myself there. Energy work where, whether it's hot yoga or qigong, it's just, it's a lot of it. So it was kind of a combination of one, relieving the sort of physical load that I had, so to speak, sort of this toxic load of, of varying components. You know, like the mold thing was a thing. That's a thing. So like that was a piece of it. Releasing the emotional load. So like deburdening all of this like emotion from an energetic perspective, learning how to de-downregulate my central nervous system and, and calm myself down because so much of it too was just without knowing it, being in a state of hypervigilance of just like your, you, your brain and your body is like you're in, is basically telling yourself you're in danger at all times. And that's really, really detrimental. So working on that through things like yoga and Qigong and meditation and breath work and all of that. Um, and then kind of just trying to come up with a routine. And the, that's the whole idea is like, how do we then, how do we move forward with a, a mental fitness routine so that we're treating this like the fitness of our bodies? It's like, you, you know, you, you can show up to the gym every day because you're trying to make your body fitter and those things you have to commit to that like forever if you're going to do it it's not a one and done scenario so it's the same thing with your mind like you can make your mind fitter over time it's a slow process and you have to come up with a routine that works for you it's the exact same concept it's not this yes no thing like are you mentally ill or not no, like, I mean, like is real mental illness think for sure. Like there are people that absolutely need like, you know, serious medical interventions. But for the most part, most of us just deal with shit. 
And some of us are good at it. And some of us are bad at it. And it depends on the day and, and we can get kind of lost in these rabbit holes and go down them. And so it's, it's recognizing that and figuring out how you counteract it so that you have good mental habits and, ment- and a regimen that works for you. Well, I think it's so powerful hearing someone from your profession talking about this. And the, the reality is you're just a human being. I'm just a human being, the teacher and the, you know, the caretaker, but we're all just people. But we, our generation was raised with this facade. This is what I would refer to as toxic masculinity, that it was this two-dimensional suck it up, rub some dirt in it, John Wayne bullshit that we were raised on. And the reality is, and I always point to this particular example, the real men in the Band of Brothers series, 60 years later, still in tears for what they saw, what they did. That's what, and these are some of the most, you know, heroic warriors that our modern society has ever seen. So I think that, again, the way you think, you know, no one's actually thinking of other people, our professions, plural, are so good at that poker face because I can't walk up on a car crash or a house fire and go, oh my God, you know, <laughs> that's right. not going to yeah, instill confidence. Yeah, so I have right. to have my game face on. I have to be in that flow state. I have to do the the hard part of the yin yang and go and effect a rescue. But after, it, whether it's kindness and compassion, the soft side with that particular person in the back of an ambulance now, or whether it's co- compassion towards myself, that's the part that's lost. And I think that we we have this facade and we become a circle rather than a yin-yang. We become all hard. And that's where that inability to downregulate comes from. So when someone from police, fire, you know, special operations, military, whatever it is, talks about this, talks about their, you know, near suicide or, or you know, the inability to cry and all these things, it's so important because there's so many people out there that think that they're weak and they're alone. Because you look around, you look at me, oh, James is fine. Inside my head, you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> he's not fine, not even close. So I think it's so important to hear that. The other thing is, as you touched on, is everyone has their own journey. I had a couple of guests on once that swore up and down that their mental health technique would solve everyone's problems. And I was like, well, I'll listen to it. We'll add it to the toolbox. But mentally, I'm like, I disagree with you that this is going to fix everyone. I'm sorry, because some people equine therapy works beautifully for a lot of people psychedelics do and i that's my big thing with the whole prohibition of drugs we have people that fought for this country they have to go overseas to get a very effective part of their treatment i think that's absolute bullshit i think the war on drugs is an epic failure personally but but yeah so understanding that this is your toolbox it's extremely broad and now being able to go okay i have all these tools in front of me what am I going to start unpacking? Because as you said, it's a combination of some physiological damage, especially in my profession where we're sleep deprived for decades, every third day, and then the psychological and slowly starting to unpack and, and go down your own very personal holistic rabbit hole. Right. Yeah, oh, exactly. I mean, like any anybody who says, I've got it all figured out and here's the solution, I think it's full of shit. Right. They're just trying to sell something. And that's, look, it's okay. Like we, we, we should feel, <laughs> it's okay to sell stuff. Like we have an economy and we have to make money. And like, this is how, this is livelihood for people. But, but that like black and white, like just, you know, this is the way, not this way. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not about that at all. I'm about, I'm about sort of opening people's eyes to the the paradigm here, which is this paradigm shift of going from, we get that physical health is on a spectrum, right? We get that it's, you know, all the way from an elite athlete to somebody who's morbidly obese and that nobody, it's not just two categories. 
people are spread out amongst this. And that, and we know that we basically, the way you go one way or the other is on us. It's, and we kind of know the factors there. It's, it's basically diet, exercise, and recovery, right? It's what we eat. It's how we move our bodies. It's how we sleep. There's some other things too, like sunlight exposure and that you could throw in the mix. But like we all pretty much agree on that. And there's no mystery there. We can, we, we argue again about the specifics, but I go back to like, sort it out for yourself. Whatever gets you there, that's what gets you there. That's what works for you. And it doesn't have to be the same as it is for anybody else. But then we look at this sort of mental health side and we go, again, are you, do you have problems or not? No, good, good great, you're good, good. Well, yep, see you later, right? Instead of saying, no, 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 it's exactly the same deal. It's on a spectrum here. And you are the one who have the power to move yourself one way or the other. The problem is we don't know what those components are. We can't point to the diet, exercise, recovery component of mental fitness, mental health, right? And so what I'm doing is sort of offering like, well, so what I'm doing then is also taking that and saying, yeah, not only that, but these things are combined too. It's not like me- your mental health and your physical health operate independently of one another and they're just like siloed, right? This is a mind-body solution. All this stuff is wrapped up with each other. So what I'm saying is kind of taking all these disparate elements and saying, look, here's here's a better paradigm here of how you achieve sort of like mind-body fitness that incorporates all of these things. And it's really driven from your mind because I go back to everything is mental. Your, your entire existence is a mental construct. It's nothing other than that. And so therefore, it's really a mentally, mental first, mind first solution paradigm. And you kind of get, once you do that, you get sort of physical fitness as a byproduct of that, right? And so it's like the basic components of it, but how each one of those, like in what combination and what you do, yeah, that's something you got to sort out on your own, right? Like it's it's worth your time to explore all these things just like it's sort of worth your time to be like, you know what, let me try a plant-based diet, see how that works for me. Let me try a meat-based diet or whatever it is, right? Let me cut dairy out and see what that does for me. All those things are really worthwhile. Like if you have the discipline to do that, you're probably going to stand a much better chance of figuring out what your actual dietary needs are rather than just going with some formula that somebody gave you. It's the exact same thing. It's like, let me try some meditation, try a little breath work. Let me try these different breathing exercises. Let me try some yoga. Let me um, go to, let me go to therapy and see what I got to work through. Right. Let me really dig into my, like there's all these exercises that we can do and to figure out like what works for us, you know? Um, And then realizing that it's, it's all incorporated too with the physical side of things. I completely agree with you. Like that's sort of like yin with no yang. I always think of like samurai warriors, or at least what I think of as samurai warriors, right? Those dudes were like badass warriors, but they meditated too. And we've somehow lost that component of the warrior mindset, right? Now it's, it's just about the sort of kickassery without the reflection and the sort of meditation and wisdom, right? Like it just feels like that way to me. Absolutely. I had a guest on Meg Tucker and she was referring to the Viking culture that's become very popular at the moment. And she said, if you actually explore the Viking warriors, it was like the samurai. They had the, yes, of course, there was the combat element, but they, I forget exactly what she said, whether it was sewing or something, but there was there was an art element. And you look at samurai, there was calligraphy, there was all these soft and hard. So yeah, we've, we've yep. attached not only our own biases to modern quote-unquote warriors, but also we've almost negated, as we talked about earlier, 
ancient wisdom like yeah well, i don't need the whole tea ceremony calligraphy bullshit just bring me the samurai and the sword and we'll just talk about that right right because i mean like because that stuff's it's like more fun to watch right and like it's it's in your face and it's cool and and so it's harder to like watch it's harder to make something visually stimulating that's like meditation like that's just some person sitting there with their eyes closed right and so yeah it's really easy to forego that aspect of it but it is and look the proof is out there like yeah again like look at the trends look at what we're dealing with as a society right from a mental health perspective like is it can it be any more apparent that like we we need that aspect to things we need that balance i just think it's it's right in our faces yeah well even physically i mean i would argue that obesity is absolutely attached to mental yeah. health as well so you can sure. physically see the crisis in the actual size of our americans sadly right because you can say yeah absolutely does it have to do with like not not exercising and poor eating yeah but where does that come from right why do people act that way again it goes back to a decision that's a choice and that choice is a mental health thing, right? Like when I'm given the choice between eating something healthy and eating something unhealthy, you know, ultimately, yeah, what I put in my body is going to have that impact. But the way I, the reason I make the choice I do is a mental health thing. So yeah, absolutely. Those things are completely intertwined and you can't separate them. Well, you talked about mental, excuse me, mind fitness. Talk to me about mm -hmm. the decision to create, um, real uh, excuse me rare sense and then kind of educate yep. people on the podcast and the resources available to them yeah so i um i was so like i said i, I kind of posted some things on instagram very well received people are like this is great like keep talking about this very hesitant though i was like eh, you know i don't want to be this public figure <laughs> that, i'm uncomfortable with that to some extent but um i was on a, a flight and i watched the movie logan which is the kind of the last the Wolverine uh, movie, Wolverine movie, right? About sort of old man Logan. And I'd seen the movie before, but I was like, oh, that's a good movie. I'll watch it again. Somebody else was watching it across from me. And it struck me in a different way that it had in the first time I watched it. I realized I was watching basically an autobiography. It was like this broken down superhero dude is me. He's like, his body's kind of falling apart. His mind is screwed up. He's drinking too much. It's like, this is like, this is like my plight and, and the plight of so many other people, right? That, that sort of veteran struggle in a lot of ways is sort of the broken superhero struggle. And I was just very struck by that juxtaposition and I didn't know what to do about it, but I felt like I had to say something about it. So I just wrote this, like wrote on a word document, wrote an article about that, uh, you know, realizing that, seeing that. Uh, and the way it made me feel. And I was like, what do I do with this? I don't know. It's, so I'd heard about Substack, which is kind of like a, it's, it's a blog, but it serves as a newsletter as well. So people write on there. There's a lot of independent journalists and, and people that do very, very successful on it. Like, I guess I'll put it on Substack. So I created a Substack account. I just put this article on and put it on social media. Like, hey, I wrote this article. And again, I had a lot of people that were like, that was great. Like, yes, right on the money. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll maybe you'll write something else, some other stuff. And I just, I decided that I had to codify everything. It was like, I had all these lessons learned as a sufferer, not as a doctor, not as like somebody in the white lab coat doing the peer reviewed studies, which is fine. 
But my own experience, I had actually found more sort of inspiration and solace and everything from suckers, from people that had said, hey, I did this and I'm, I'm better now. That meant more to me than somebody who said, hey, I, I'm the doctor and here's what you should do. You know, and I've treated people. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't know that I trust you. Sorry, but that's just the way I feel. Um, so I felt like I got I, I actually have a lot to say in this regard. I've done so much and I think I can help people. And I think I can codify this in a way where it's new and fresh and makes sense. Um, so I did that. I was like, I you know, wrapped this up. I came up with the rare sense name, which is, it's like the opposite of common sense, right? It's like, um, and, um, I started writing articles. So I just started writing like a monthly article. It was just about sort of, I wrote a manifesto, which is like, here's what this is about. And then I wrote, I write articles sort of about mental health mainly, but sort of chronic illness as well about like a topic and things that I had learned. Um, and I had done a little bit on the go ruck blog as well. Actually, they let me, they had me do some things called mind matters, which people liked as well. And then it just kind of grew out of that. So it started as that. And then I was like, well, let me try a podcast as well. Um, so I can talk to people and I can talk to either experts in sort of mental health, but a lot of people that are veterans that are now like doing mental health. There's a lot of guys that are, they, they are a veteran. And then they went into the sort of mental health realm to help other people. I think they're super interesting to talk to. Um, so I started doing that. Uh, and then I would do a, a book recommendation every month. So it kind of like, here's an article about this topic. Here's a book that I've read that's you can kind of really deep dive on this topic. And then I started just recently doing where I kind of really eventually figured out I wanted to get to, which was month or sorry, weekly training. Like the way CrossFit has a wad every day, a workout of the day where it's like, here's the wad, here's the workout. It's like that for your mind like a mind workout, which I don't, I hadn't seen anybody do, but it's like, and, and I do it on a weekly basis because part of this is building good habits, right? It's like, I want people to try stuff and then be like, did that work for me or, or not? Right. Like, did I like that or not? And then sort of adopt it as needed into their own regimen. So it's, so I'm, I'm now doing it on a weekly basis. So it's like, here's the, Here's what you're going to do every day for the next week. And from a mind training perspective, here's your mind workout. Um, and, and then see what that does for you. And then next week, it's something different. And I'm just going to keep going with that. And it'll be different. And this is everything from meditation, breath work, journaling, problem solving, um, you know, like even skill development and then permutations and mixing of those things as well. I mean, that's just what CrossFit does, right? They just take different exercises and put them in different combinations so it's it's the same idea you know well i love that too because like you said you know I, I i meditate for example so i follow certain routines with that i use headspace i love that app um i do crossfit i do jiu-jitsu but as far as a mental workout i know to read i know to write you know i know that learning another language things like that are great for the mind too but to actually have a structure be like hey pick you know something from category a something from category B, and, and do this on monday this on tuesday i think that's a great resource and i haven't seen that before either yeah i don't think it's out there i mean because I, I, I think it's really tricky and i don't i think it's a <laughs> it's taken me a while to figure out how to do it but it's something you know a lot of people the, the reason why people do crossfit or whatever is because 
they don't want to have to figure out what they're doing every day from a workout perspective. They just want someone to tell them, do this, right? And like over time though, really all you're doing, like you know how to do the movements. Like I go to the gym now because I like the camaraderie and and it's fun that way, but I really don't need anybody to coach me per se. It's great that like there's a workout on the board. Cool. I don't have to think about that. And I can do this with people and it's fun. Same thing here. It's like people don't know where to start. And it's like, well, do I meditate? How do I meditate? What do, where do I go with like breath work? There's a gazillion things out there. So it's like, here you go. And here's some instructional videos. So I time to my YouTube channel if I need to instruct people on how to do something. And it's like, try this out, you know? And over time, my hope is honestly like, you don't need to, here's the other thing too. I'm not out there like, hey, you need to follow me forever. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, hopefully my intent is to expose people to all these different modalities, have them try them over time. And then eventually, sure, they could keep doing what I'm recommending each week. Or it's like, no, I'm good. You know what? I understand what I need to do now. I've figured out a good regimen for myself and I'm just going to move forward with that. That's awesome. Right. And that's, that's my hope for people. Beautiful. Well, where can people find that online? And then what about social media as well? Yeah. So rarsense.com is the website and that's linked to the podcast. It's linked to the Substack, rarsense.substack.com, which is where most of the content gets published. Even the podcast comes through the Substack account. So the easiest thing is just to subscribe to that. Uh, I do have a personal website. I'm this Chris Irwin across the internet personally. So that's my website. That's every social media handle. The ones I primarily use are Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I don't really do anything on Twitter or anything like that. Uh, but I do post videos on all the podcast episodes are on YouTube uh, at this Chris, Chris Irwin. And um, as are like any of the instructional videos. So like the meditation videos and breathing videos and things like that. Beautiful. Well, Chris, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for over two hours now. So uh, it's been an yeah. amazing conversation. We've been all over the place. But I, as I said, it's important, I think, for people to hear men and women that find themselves on pedestals. They didn't put themselves there, but they are through society's eyes. But hearing the vulnerability, hearing the struggle, and then most importantly, hearing the solution that there is a way out and you actually can be an even stronger, more resilient version of yourself once you've figured out what some of the challenges are and you've been able to address them. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, man. Really enjoyed it.